This is Out the Gate, a podcast about sailing and adventure on and around San Francisco Bay. I'm your host, Ben Shaw, and my guest this week has probably had more close encounters with great white sharks than nearly any other person on the planet. Ron Elliott is a retired urchin diver who's spent countless hours underwater at the Farallon Islands. The Farallons are 30 miles off the coast of San Francisco. Two years ago, I interviewed friend and filmmaker Josh Berry, who profiled a close but lucky run-in Ron had with a shark in his film called Near Miss. Since then, Ron, who's stopped collecting urchins but continues to dive at the Farallons because he simply loves being underwater there, has had another encounter during which he found himself facing a massive shark charging him with open jaws. He didn't escape unscathed, but I'll let him tell the full story, scars and all. Ron and I have a great conversation ranging from how he got into diving, why he started and continues to dive at the Farallons, to his work with shark researchers trying to better understand these often maligned animals. So enjoy. My name is Ron Elliott. I uh, grew up here in in California, Southern California, and then finally uh, I'm a transplant and came up to Northern California where it's less crowded, that's why. As a kid growing up, uh, you know, I liked uh, going down to, uh, by the Santa Monica Pier as a kid, you know, swimming, body surfing. And then as I got older, nine or 10, you know, I got a, got a big, huge, long, heavy surfboard and started surfing. And as a kid, I also liked fishing. There was some neighbors, a couple neighbors that would every once in a while take me out on one of the party boats, one of the half day boats to go fishing as a kid. And then eventually uh, came around to having a choice because I like to surf and fish. A friend of mine finally uh, so why don't you try up diving? And I said, really, I can do that? And he says, yes, I got some stuff you can borrow and it's not that expensive. So it was uh, a friend of mine who uh, got me into it. And what year was that? How old were you when you, when you first tried diving? That was at the uh, beginning of 78, 1978. I was 27 years old. And did you take to it right away? Oh, yeah. No, I liked it. Yeah. I used my uh, surf suit, which wasn't really great for diving, got a little cold, but then I just needed a snorkel and a mask and some fins and did the course and, and away I went. What was the course like back then? Was the gear different? Okay, so back then, the so-called BCDs back then was just like an air bladder that went around your neck. It, it had nothing to do with re- extra regulators or inflators uh-huh. or anything like that. All you did was you wore a tank, and back then, a lot of the valves had like a little, a little lever on it, so you could get an extra few hundred pounds out of it if you were running low on air. And all you had was just the one regulator hose and your uh, pressure gauge. So it was pretty minimal, which was fine for me because I, it made it simple. What was it about diving that hooked you? I guess uh, once you get underneath the water there, it's, it's just a, a whole different medium. 
and I think um, it was just really soothing. You know, I, I noticed that it was just something that my body really liked uh, mentally yeah. and physically. And then it was just so different. You can think you know what the bottom looks like, but once you get down there and experience it and see kind of how the kelp is moving and the rocks with the abalone or the lobster or the fish and how they're interacting, you know, it just, um, it just kind of captivates your imagination and you get drawn into wanting to see more. And so how did you get into the, the urchin diving? How did you marry the diving with, with your work? Uh, at that time, I was working uh, just at, you know, doing a, a just a, a funky job, nothing that I would want to make a living at at the time. And, um, and so when I took the diving course, there was some guys that were helping the dive teacher out that were trying to get into urchin diving. They had bought an old 32 foot radon with two big giant motor, you know, uh, 454 Chevrolet motors that needed work and they were constantly working on them and spending all their money trying to keep this boat running and and it, it interests me because I liked fishing at the time and I always thought well maybe I could you know do a little commercial fishing on the side and then these guys were talking about diving and so at that same time uh, I had a, a little dory that I used to fish out of on my off hours, a mahogany lap straight dory, uh, just kind of real simple, but I had a lot of fun with it. And then I was thinking of getting something a little bigger, but what these guys trying to do what they were doing, that really piqued my interest. So I ended up investing some money into a, a, a boat, a 24 foot rad, and, and I was gonna try commercial fishing but then I thought, well, maybe I'll set it up for the diving this sea urchin because there was no real heavy restrictions at this time on it. I started out not knowing anything and just having to learn first at hand. And how did, how did you go about doing that? Did you talk to other urchin divers or you just go out there and try it? Like, how do you even know where to go to look? Well, okay, so the urchins uh, attach themselves to the rock where the kelp is, and um, so they like to feed off of the kelp, which uh, makes the row inside the shell this nice, bright, healthy uh, yellow color, gives it a good flavor. You know, I'm familiar with seeing the urchins on the rocks where, you know, if people stepping on them, if you're surfing in the intertidal zone, getting right. those urchin spines in your feet. So I knew about them, you know, in a painful way. <laughs> But this whole idea of, of collecting them was uh, I met, uh, so these two, these guys, this group of three guys that were trying to put this boat together and they never really succeeded at it. But I watched them do a lot of struggles with the, an old boat and spending a ton of money. I met somebody else that was a commercial abalone diver and he was telling me, okay, this is what you do. And he, he knew the different ins and outs told me where, you know, people like in Santa Barbara area that had some equipment that I could, you know, need to do what I wanted to. And, and so through word of mouth, I found a few people to get some, an air compressor set up on the boat, uh, you know, long hookah hose, uh, get a proper wetsuit and um, 
and then get a, a, a davit or a hoist that I can lift the big heavy bags or urchins on the boat with. So, you know, it all happens pretty quick. So in 1978, after several months, I was, I had uh, basically quit my job and started urchin diving. Wow. You were solo. I know that in later years, you, you, you were definitely solo, but were you from solo from the start, going out on your own? Yeah, I started out on my own. I mean, I met some guys that, you know, uh, were either trying to get their boats going or their boats broke down and they needed some temporary work. Of course, you let them work with you for a little while till they got, their, got back on their feet. But uh, I preferred to dive alone because I didn't have to wait for anybody. Uh, I, yeah. um, you know, I could just go when I wanted to. And um, to me, it, that was fine. And you've got the compressor on the back of the boat with a hookah lying down to you underwater. And how long are you usually under collecting? Well, it all depends on how deep you go. So, um, you know, if you're in 30 feet of water, you know, which is ideal, because then you can spend a lot of time at that depth. You, you know, you might spend two or three hours at one in one time under the water and then come up collect your bags, put them on the boat, and then go back down. But, uh, you know, so maybe in a day, you might spend probably up to six hours in the water. Wow. I assume by this time, you've moved on from the, the surfing wetsuit. Oh, yeah. yeah <laughs> you know, uh, so, you know, the surfing wetsuit thing was just to get me through the course. So what happened was there was this outfit in Santa Barbara called the Wetsuit Factory, and they would have these these thick wetsuits that were three eighths of an inch thick. And it was a jacket and a, and a, a long john. So over your midsection, you had three quarters of an inch of rubber and you had to wear a lot of lead to uh, get yourself down. But um, it offered a lot of protection from the urchin spines and from the cold water in the Channel Islands there off of uh, Santa Barbara and Oxnard. So, so that's where you started out, was the Channel Islands there? Yeah, yeah. And was there a fleet of virgin divers? Were you out with other people and a crew? Or um, I mean, I know you were diving alone off your boat most of the time, but um, was it crowded? So when I first started out, it wasn't too crowded. Working for about 12 cents a pound. The boats were spread out, you know, somewhere down at San Clemente Island and... Um, working the coastline, uh, then all the Channel Islands, San Nicholas on up. So there were boats out of every port, but it wasn't that crowded at that time. Uh, price wasn't that great. I'm curious about the price because I just had on the show a crab fisherman. And as we know from this season, the crab season opened late because the crab crabbers were haggling over price. How, how was the price for urchin set? At that time, you had to go through uh, these urchin processors, and most of them were Japanese, and they were all affiliated with middlemen uh, for the Tokyo uh, marketplace, Skiji Market. And so you had to go through these different processors. There ended up being one processor down in San Diego that got into it that wasn't Japanese, and then there was some a set of brothers up in Fort Bragg that ended up getting involved. But at first you had to really, you had to go through these people who had these connections in Japan through their, their buyers. 
So the price was set by them and it was all depending on the quality of the row and the percentage of return of row to the actual weight. So when we brought in sea urchins, we, were, we weighed the whole product, the shell that had some water in it, the egg, everything. And then after they process it, they would determine how much percentage of recovery of egg compared to what they paid you for the whole price. Beginning, it was really very modest returns for what you did, but then the cost of running boats and everything else accelerated over the years. So, Urchin isn't seen on as many menus here, obviously, as in Japan. It's the row that the Japanese uh, are after, the, the eggs inside. Yeah, uni. Uni. Yep. Are you a fan of uni? Um, no, I like I like uni. You know, uh, you had to taste it and be aware of the product that you were selling. So uh, a lot of times you would crack open urchins, see what the color looked like, get on the boat, taste it. Yeah. Um, and the more you knew about the product you were selling, the better you were at defending the price that they were trying to give you. <laughs> ah, that makes so, sense. You know, you you had to be aware of what you were selling them. So if they started saying, hey, you know, and we didn't have very, very good checks and balances. We really, it was an honor system that there was no way for us to really counteract what was being paid. You know, it, it, it progressed from there, but it took time. And you mentioned that at some point you made that move from Southern California to Northern California to get away from so many people. Was it get away from other urchin divers? So when I left Santa Barbara, it was the last port I was working out of. Yeah, it was getting crowded. There was a lot of people. Urchins had become this, you know, even the fishing game was advertising it as the, you know, the gold rush. And so there was no restrictions. A lot of people were getting uh, permits to dive urchins. And it was just a lot of boats, a lot of competition. Then when Northern California opened up, there was just a few boats that went up there and did some exploratory uh, work and they ended up staying because there was just so much uh, to harvest. And, and really you were making money on how much you picked. Volume was the key back then. You, you should say quality, but it, it wasn't always the quality, it was the volume where you made your money. That's why I, I decided to go north because I wanted to try something different, kind of get up where where the uh, the progression of the uh, industry was, you know, where you could make more money. Yeah. When did you start diving at the Farallons here off of San Francisco? So that was uh, that was in um, in '89. I had sold my boat at that time to one of the processors in Fort Bragg. And I came down to Bodega Bay. I was still living in Southern California commuting. And I started working on a, a guy's boat that I knew over the years who was originally from Santa Barbara. And I started working on his boat. And then when he wasn't on, I was running it. And so it was in 89 that we, uh, uh, ended up going out to uh, the Farallons. What was your impression of the Farallons the first time you went out there? Do you remember? There was this agreement 
that um, my wife didn't want me to die there. Um, and why was that? Because of the reputation of the sharks and stuff. Yeah. But this uh, one trip, you know, we ended up going out there. You know, it was just so different. You know, I liked it. There was a lot of urchins. Um, I don't think we saw any other any boats that day. The first day we went there, did have a shark swim right over us. One of the guys that was from uh, Ventura, that was it for him. He went back down to Ventura and never came back up. Uh, the boat owner and I kept diving there. It was something I, you know, I'd seen sharks before down in Channel Islands. Uh, yeah, there was something about the Farallons. I, I liked it. It was not the competition there, kind of like Mysterious Island, very different setting, but I liked it. Did you just not tell your wife or how did you break it to your wife that you had been diving at the Farallons? Uh, I told her, I said, hey, you know, uh, we went there and I go, you know, I can see, uh, you know, we're going to be diving there more. And she accepted it. She she went along with it. She knew it was just part of the business. Um, I don't know if I really gave her a choice or not. I, I think she was just very accommodating and just said, oh, okay, you know, but yeah, I did tell her. It really wasn't an issue after that. Is there a fear for you and you push it aside and don't worry about it? Or is it something that's never really been a fear for you, the encounters with the sharks? You know, I think I used to just say, uh, you know, it's not a big deal, blow. And and when I was diving and, and uh, picking the urchins, it was about making money. Yeah. And uh, I think I was pretty focused on making money. It didn't matter if the if there was a like a an attack on a uh, elephant seal in this one spot or the shark research go hey there's a bunch of sharks here just you know there was a kill here not too long ago the urchins were there and i was going to make money i was going in the water after i stopped it wasn't about the money but it was about doing what i liked and that was going down there and see what was going on and filming what was happening I'd say more as time went on, there was a little bit more fear that I had to deal with mm. um, because of the odds, the amount of time I was spending there, just different situations that come up that there was nothing I could do, you know, something happened, you know, that's totally out of my conscious view or whatever, and that could have gone different. So in a way, you know, there was a lot of luck or whatever you want to call it. And then there was a, a little bit I learned about their behavior, but there are those times where you get challenged. So I can't say I, I don't have fear because there are, there are times uh, that yeah. definitely, uh, you know, I'm nervous about it. And you've had some encounters, which we'll get to in a moment here, but I wanna first talk a little bit about that transition you made, because you mentioned you, you stopped urchin diving but there was something about it being underwater there that kept you coming back and you, you stayed and you, you kept diving, you kept filming, doing a lot of documentary work. For somebody who hasn't been under the water 
or over the water there at the Farallons. Can you describe a little bit about what it's like and what pulled you back again and again? For me, it was like with surfing and then it was more so with diving as I could, um, I could find some quiet time. Uh -huh. I could be totally alone on my own. Whatever happens is totally up to me and the decisions that I make. That was for some reason important to me. I think in life I had grown up sometimes with some people doing certain things and their actions caused a reaction that I was affected by. Uh -huh. And so for me, by the time I, uh, the situation of diving out there and filming later on and stuff was something that, um, you know, I, I, I like because um, uh, it was all, all left up to me. Whatever I did, if something happened to me, it, it's not like I could blame anybody or anything or have fault or it would be just a natural reaction of what happens to people in life. Some things happen on days and some days you get the lucky card and you get to go another day. And so I, I like that. Yeah, the self-sufficiency of it. Yeah, yeah. Beyond the sharks, because you were self-sufficient, you must have had days when you had problems with the compressor or other things that went wrong. Are there any that times that stand out when you had to get yourself out of a jam? Oh, yeah. I mean, sometimes, you know, I got myself in too close and end up getting thrown over some wash rocks up in the turbulence, get my hookah hose caught in the rocks and swear that that was going to be it for me. You know, sometimes stupid things like you jump in the water, you forget to turn the air on and you get down. Next thing you know, you don't have any air. Oh. Um other times I've had it where on my hookah hose, uh, I uh, kicked the quick disconnect fitting that's not supposed to quick disconnect. Be off in the current away from the boat in 50, 60 feet of water and the hose pops off and I'm out of air and I'm not anywhere near the boat. You know, and you gotta do a free ascent and swim through the current to get back. You know, there's different things that happen bends and stuff like that especially when you're commercial diving you push it you push it to the extreme you know you get bent and uh, you pay the price for that the pain yeah there's always something that uh, that pops up you know and you just have to kind of keep a, a level head about it and not panic hmm you're a long way off. For those who don't know, the Farallons, how long did it take you to get there by boat? You know, so it's like 27 miles or so from uh, the Farallons to the Golden Gate in San Francisco. I keep my boat when I was uh, urchin diving, I kept it up in Bodega Bay. So it was a, uh, it was around a 37 mile trip to get to Bodega Bay. And then where I am now in the back of Tamales Bay, it's uh, 43 miles one way. So it's a bit of a trip. Yeah, it's a, it's a good two hour boat ride. So you truly are out there on your own most of the time. Yeah, I mean, you know, I do have friends, the shark researcher guys sometimes are out there, uh, you know, and I know some of the people on the island that are uh, 
<clears throat> working for the uh, Bird Observatory or, or Point Blue. On the boat, I'm alone, but there are some people around some, some of the times, yeah. How many great white encounters would you say you've had now over your lifetime? I saw some number of 400 on, uh, online, but I'd imagine it's probably, how many would you say? Well, you know, and that, you know, I wish I never even answered that answer uh, for somebody because yeah. I have no clue. Right. Um, and also, I don't even keep track. I mean, I do keep a dive log of what I've seen and stuff, but I've never looked at it, to tell you the truth, or added anything up. Well, the reason but, I asked that is because I want to ask you about two particular encounters. I just want people to keep in mind when we're talking about these encounters that they are such a minuscule percentage of your time around these animals. But you and I first met because a friend of mine, Josh Barry, who actually has been on this program talking about surfing and and his film, Near Miss, which profiles you and the specific encounter you had. Do you want to describe what happened in, in the footage that you shared with Josh? Yeah, so that um, that uh, that took place out at the Farallon Islands. And that was, um, I think, four years ago now. And, and maybe a little over four years. And so that was uh, one of those days where I jumped in. I had, a, um, I had a GoPro in my hand. I didn't have a regular film camera at that time. I had ordered a new one and it hadn't arrived yet. So I had a, uh, a GoPro in my hand. And then on my hookah hose, about six feet behind me, I have a, a GoPro that's on a little swivel with the float. So it, it just rides about six feet behind me and kind of with that wide angle view that GoPros have, it kind of kind of centers me in the picture. A lot of times in the current, that'll blow away to the side. But at this particular day, the visibility wasn't too bad. And I was swimming along. And as I look back towards my GoPro to see how it was, if it was riding okay and looking behind me, uh, just as I started to turn away, a shark came out of the gloom straight at me. I didn't notice it because I was still looking backwards behind me. And it came up and kind of the nose hit the back of my head. And as its mouth opened up, my head went down. And then the lower jaw hit the back of my head even harder and kind of knocked me down towards the bottom. It wasn't an attack or anything like that. It was just, I've been bumped before. But luckily, one of those teeth didn't snag me in the back of the head. Those lower teeth stick out. But that was one of those kind of encounters, you know, just, and luckily the GoPro got the shot of it hitting me. So yeah, it was kind of, it was pretty cool. Yeah. So, I mean, what's, what's astounding is, it, is the footage of it. And when you saw it, did it jive with what you had felt? Did you, did you say, oh yeah, that's, that's what happened? Or were you, was there a surprise at all to see what had actually happened? Oh, I knew what it was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, Do you know I, what it was I as been, soon as, as, soon as you felt it? The first hit, no. But the second one, 
it went boom, boom. And uh, then I knew, because I had had that happen before where one hit me with its, its nose and then hit me with its jaw, trying to kind of reposition over my back one time. Uh, you know, I have footage of that one. Josh has seen that one. You know, the first hit, I thought it was a sea lion or something, but it felt like somebody dropped an anchor on my back. And then the second hit was the lower part of the jaw trying to kind of grab on. And then the pectoral fin as it went by rolled me, you know, kind of caught me in my hip and rolled me over. And I went, oh yeah, there we go. And yeah. that's, that's no sea lion. <laughs> and you think it's the shark basically saying, I'm here. Yeah, I think it's more of a territorial thing. You know, it tried to bite me. You know, you can see it in the video. Just it caught its pectoral fin on my anchor chain because I was checking my anchor. So that kind of deterred it from getting a straight shot at me. It wasn't like an attack. It was just going to bite me and see what I was. But those teeth can hurt. Yeah. They're just checking you out, but that can uh, cause some damage. Yeah, I mean, those are the times where, you know, you don't see it coming. So either luck or fate or, or whatever, or karma or whatever is on your side. You know, you have to, you have to give thanks. Yeah. yeah. And you have spent probably more time in the presence of these creatures than almost anybody else. You mentioned this, the shark researchers who are out there, who've become your buddies. Do you share information with them? Do you chat with them about what you see and tell them what you think you've learned? Yeah. So like for me, you know, I'm just kind of an observer. I'm not like a, a researcher where I really, you know, clinically look at all the, at the data, but yeah, these guys, I share my video and what I see and stuff with them and you know, we're all good friends and it's all in the spirit of um, having good records of uh, which ones are still around, you know, their growth. Sometimes they get seen a year or two later and they've grown a bit, quite a bit. And others, you know, seem to stay the same size. So yeah, there's different things that we can learn from each of our sightings. And so there are ones that you recognize, they come by and you'll say, oh, that's so-and-so. I've seen you before. Yeah, sometimes they're very recognizable and other times there's something about them that, you know, I recognize, but I, I can't tell you, you know, right off. But when I get home and get the video and look at it and I go, oh yeah, then I recognize the certain little patterns on their dorsal or their markings. But yeah, some of them are real obvious and then some are just very subtle and I have to look at the video later. So I mentioned uh, two encounters that I wanted to touch on. The second one happened after you made the film Near Miss with Josh and you were out and um, got a bite on your, your hand and your arm. How did that happen? So this one spot, let's see. So this was the uh, one, two, three, with this, within a hundred feet of this one spot, at the Fairlawns, I had this this encounter, and this was back in October of 2018. Uh, I had been out diving before, day before, two days before. My friends uh, Scott and Paul and Pat were out on their shark research boat, the NorCal, 
So I knew they were out there that morning and they were checking out a predation on an elephant seal up off of the West End. And uh, I jumped in to go diving at the same spot that I've had some encounters before. So the surface of the water had a lot of white foam from the surf. When I jumped in, I just started heading down. I saw this shark coming up off the bottom at me. It was big, you know, she, she was big. As she got closer, she wasn't going like full speed, like an attack at the surface where you see them come out of the water or something like that, but she, was, she wasn't slowing down. So I had a feeling that we were gonna ram into each other. So, you know, it happened pretty quick. So I faced off at her, I was maybe like 20 feet below the surface heading down towards the bottom and she was coming up on an angle at me. So as she got real close and I knew she was gonna ram into me, she wasn't gonna back off. Uh, so I put my camera out and I tried hitting her in the nose, but her mouth kept opening, getting bigger and bigger and bigger, you know, cause she was getting ready to, you know, her eyes were rolling back. I hit something with my camera just I think the upper jaw part a little bit and I glanced off to the side. I don't know if the camera went in her mouth or not. It, you know, it, it happened so quick. Uh, my face was so close to her mouth, her, her teeth grabbed the regulator right out, out, of my, out of my mouth, punctured a hole in it and ripped it out of my mouth. And then my hand as I went off to the side was stuck in her she had bit down on it and I was being kind of shaken around for a few seconds. Uh, eventually, uh, my regulator was still stuck up in her teeth. And so she flipped over, did it like a somersault over. And, and then the regulator cleared from her mouth because I couldn't swim away. And once that regulator cleared out of her jaw, then I could swim back to the boat. When I got to the boat, I looked underneath. I was climbing up on the outdrive of the back of the boat and I looked and she was underneath there kind of looking at me, you know, just seeing if I was gonna get up there. So I got on the boat and, you know, made, made a call to the NorCal and they came by and uh, helped me out. How bad was your arm and your hand where she had been shaking you? Yeah, I ripped up my forearm pretty good. One of the tooths went into my index finger knuckle. One went into my uh, ring finger. Three of them went in the top of my wrist. One went into the side of my wrist. So I cut all the tendons so my hand was like on a 45 degree hanging off to the side. And then uh, on the uh, underside of my uh, forearm, there was about six or eight inch area that was ripped up. All the muscle and everything was ripped open. So it was, pretty painful. The nerves, you know, nerves, tendons, ligaments, muscle, all that stuff got ripped up. Mm. Your buddies on the other boat come over and what happens next? So I called them on the radio and I said, one got me and they go repeat. <laughs> and I go, one got me. And they said, all right, we'll be right there. And so um, they were dealing with a uh, shark at that time, but they got their anchor up and they uh, they got over there and only took them a little over four minutes to get there, which was really good. Luckily, they had a tourniquet on the boat and they helped get a tourniquet on it, wrap it up in some towels. And uh, I showed uh, Scott and Paul how to run the boat. 
They said, well, we'll run to San Francisco, you know, and follow you in. And I said, oh, no, you're not. You're going to take my boat back to Tomales Bay where, <laughs> where its home is, because I don't want my boat somewhere I don't want it to be. <laughs> so I showed them how to start it, run the hydraulics, pull the anchor, do all the stuff. Pat kept going, come on, Ron, we got to go. <laughs> they said, okay, okay, we got it, Ron, we got it. Uh, they took my boat back to its mooring in Tomales Bay. And then Pat on the NorCal and Ollie, who was uh, one of the shark guys, uh, was there. Uh, so they, we made a run into San Francisco, uh, heading for San Francisco Bay. And then they became in contact with the uh, Coast Guard. And then the Coast Guard uh, deployed a, a helicopter that came and picked me up off of uh, the San Francisco uh, Marine unit boat. It's a bigger boat with a bigger deck on it that the helicopter guy could put a diver down and get me in a basket. So you guys did a transfer from one boat to another and then the helicopter picked you up off the boat? Yeah, yeah. You were still outside of the gate at that point? Yeah, we had made it maybe almost halfway to San Francisco by the time they uh, we hooked up. They flew you right to the hospital and I imagine went into surgery? No, what happened was they took me to Stanford and uh, they elected not to do surgery because they were afraid of infection. So, hmm. so much for Stanford. <laughs> so, um, so I ended up getting going to a, a clinic in San Francisco, the Bunky Clinic, who are like the innovators of microsurgery back in the early 70s. So I ended up with a better hospital treatment and surgeon. And you were telling me before that you're doing rehab for it. What has that process been like? Four days ago, I just had a, my sixth surgery. You know, I've learned a lot from it. I, I've met a really nice uh, uh, physical therapy gal. She's great. She's like the best in the business. So I, I lucked out. I got some gal that really knows her stuff and she's really good at it. So I've gotten really good care. I've met some really nice people. But the, the one thing I found out with the teeth, the way that they shred things up is that the body just scars so, so heavily. So they have to keep going in and re cleaning up all my tendons and nerves and everything from the scars that just kind of embedded into everything. Because um, the so, teeth are serrated or is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, it's, they're not clean cut. So everything is just kind of ripped up. And so uh, scarring is what, attaches everything and uh this is my sixth one and have one more for sure to go it's a long haul yeah yeah and are you back in the water uh i was diving last year uh, uh water conditions weren't that good for us well it was 2020 it was one of those years if anything was going to be weird that was the year so it wasn't a good year for me filming underwater i got out of the water the shark researcher guys came by, this was in November. They came by and said, hey, you know, and I said, no, nah, I'm done diving. The, the biz isn't very good. There's just too much krill and all this other stuff on the bottom, can't see anything. So they said, well, you know, we're gonna go, you wanna go around with us? So I got on their boat and we went over to the other side of the island where there was an attack and it was the shark that bit me. Wow. Uh, so we got to see, I got to film from being on the boat, that shark uh, feeding on a four or 500 pound elephant seal. 
Scott and Paul and them, uh, they were saying, oh yeah, that's a good 18 foot plus shark. She was really big. So, um, but so it was good to see, you know, she was, she's huge. <laughs> Better the seal than you. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, what was your feeling seeing that shark? Is there any oh, animosity? Cool. Oh no, it was cool. I, you know, you know, in my heart, I wish I was in the water, but then things change, you know, and things have been really kind of difficult uh, as far as um, the amount of rehab and what it's cost, you know, time-wise with my wife and I, uh, you know, so we're learning from it and, you know, and I, I don't think it's as big a urgency for me to keep diving and doing that anymore. I mean, I've done it for so many years uh, that it's like, mm, you know, I'll probably start moving on and just doing something else. I haven't totally written it off, but, um, you know, it has changed my mind a bit. Yeah. Because of the encounter? Yeah. And it's also just, you know, she's allowed me to do this for so many years. So there is a sacrifice on her part. Yeah. And, you know, as much as I'd like to make it all about, you know, what I want, it can't always be that way. Unless I want a divorce. No, it's not about a divorce. But I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, yeah, you know, life, you know, things change. So I, I uh, kind of left, well, okay, what's next? What, you know, what interests me and, and I'm open to it. You know, I've been kind of wishing for something to change. Yeah. Uh, I'm not the type to set a goal and say, oh, I'm going to go do this. That's not me. I just kind of let things happen. And You're just uh, open for the next thing now. Exactly. So I'm open right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll let the universe know. That's right. It's out there. <laughs> Ron, what haven't we touched on? What, what else would you want people to know? either about sharks or about your time in the water, about the Farallons, anything else? You know, for me, it's about respecting what we have. Our resource out there is not unlimited. It is a limited resource. So, you know, for me, it's about ocean appreciation or environmental appreciation of what we have here. You know, not just the ocean, but everything, everything's connected. Everybody's got their own path in life, but you know, I think as like for me, and you know, you hear about for a lot of people, you know, as you get older, it's not so much about myself and my goals. It's about maybe what I can do in other areas because I've been fortunate enough. That's kind of where my outlook is now, kind of giving back to people who, if they need help or if they need some advice, I'm willing to be there. That seems to bring me more joy than just doing something just for myself. I guess that's an old man thing. <laughs> that's a wonderful, Ron. Well, you certainly have, through sharing your stories, through sharing your time underwater with others, given all of us a, a greater appreciation for what's under there, for a respect and an appreciation, not only for the great whites but all all the creatures there so thank you for that and thanks for for chatting this has been fan fantastic ben there was a 
I was talking about my shark researcher friends and stuff. They have, for anybody who's passionate about the white sharks and, and, uh, and the information, there is a California white shark count. They do have a GoFundMe site because they lost all their funding from uh, the Monterey Bay Aquarium and, and et cetera. So uh, if you're interested in something like that, please check them out. They're good guys. They do good, honest research, and they have been doing it for a number of years. And I hate to see a big lapse in uh, in the data if they can't afford to get out there and keep doing what they're doing. But uh, otherwise, thanks, Ben. It was uh, I appreciate you having me on. That's great, Ron. I will put a link to that GoFundMe in the show notes so people can find it. I didn't know that there was that lapse in funding. And thanks again, Ron. Really appreciate it. That wraps up this week's episode. If you're interested in seeing Josh Berry's film Near Miss that Ron and I talk about, you can go to nearmissfilm.com. It costs a few bucks, but the money goes to support West Marin Community Services. And if you want to help support the important shark research happening at the Farallons, search GoFundMe for California Great White Shark Count. That's California Great White Shark Count. They've raised about half of their goal of $30,000, and the money's really important to them right now because they've lost a lot of their funding because of COVID. I'll also put a link to that in the show notes. You can reach me at outthegatesailing at gmail.com. I'm Ben Shaw, host and producer of the show. Until next time, smooth sailing.